Welcome to Reconciliation Road, an exciting new podcast hosted by yours truly, Dan George. I extend appreciation to the First Nations Major Projects Coalition, who sponsor, in part, this podcast. The FNMPC is established to create pathways to reconciliation by advancing opportunities for First Nations to obtain ownership stakes and major resource projects that run through their territories by advocating for sovereign loan guarantees and establishing economic models that would increase Indigenous participation in major developments while still protecting the environment. I extend my deep appreciation to the FNMPC for their support. Today, I'm so excited to introduce my first guest. On May 27, 2021, I had the pleasure of interviewing Grand Chief Stephen Point for his keynote address for the Indigenous Partnership Success Showcase hosted by Resource Works on May 27th and June 4th. The Indigenous Partnership Success Showcase was held virtually in response to growing demand for practical guidance on how Indigenous communities and their enterprise partners can work together in common purpose for shared success. The event featured leaders from many walks of life, including my mentor, Grand Chief Stephen Point, who I had the pleasure of interviewing on May 27th. Grand Chief Point really needs no introduction, but for those of you who do not know the Grand Chief, here is a snippet of his bio. The Honorable Stephen Lewis Point served as a Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia from 2007 to 2012. He is a member of the Skowkale First Nation, where he served as elected chief at the age of 23. He graduated from the University of British Columbia with a law degree in 1985. He practiced law as a partner in the firm of Point and Shirley, and then worked for the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs and in the Refugee Department of the Department of Employment and Immigration. In 1991, he became the director of the First Nations Legal Studies Program at the UBC Faculty of Law. From 1994 to 1999, he was tribal chair of the Stalo Nation and grand chief of Stalo Tribal Council. He was appointed a provincial court judge in 1999 based in Abbotsford, but his duties took him throughout the province. In 2005, Stephen Point was appointed chief commissioner of the British Columbia Treaty Commission. In 2007, he was named the province's 28th Lieutenant Governor. In that role, he took a special interest in inspiring young people towards their chosen path. He served as Lieutenant Governor with grace, candor, and good humor. In 2014, he was reappointed a provincial court judge, and he retired from office in 2018. Stephen Point has an outstanding record of service to the people of British Columbia. He advocated for First Nations people throughout his career pressing for greater recognition of their contributions and their fuller involvement in all aspects of life in British Columbia. He received the Queen Elizabeth II Golden and Diamond Jubilee Medals and the Order of British Columbia. In 2000, he was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of the Fraser Valley and in 2016 received the Order of Chilliwack. He is known for his love of music, his commitment to his community, dedication to the legal profession, dedication to land rights, and for encouraging the revival of traditional singing and dance for the Stalo Nation. At the core of all that we do is change, and change has a considerable psychological impact on the human mind. To the fearful, it is threatening because it means that things may get worse. To the hopeful, it is encouraging because things may get better. And to the confident, it is inspiring because the challenge exists to make things better. Let's have a listen to Grand Chief Point's encouraging and inspiring keynote. 
Good morning. <clears throat> I'd like to thank those who organized this conference to bring us together <clears throat> to talk about indigenous <clears throat> people and working together with business communities, corporations to examine the topic of <clears throat> economic development and making connections with First Nations people. This is a <clears throat> important topic and timely one. And as First Nations move towards self-government, self-government is an inherent Aboriginal right, something that is now entirely recognized by the International Declaration <clears throat> on the Rights of Indigenous People. Canada is also taking steps to incorporate UNDRIP, as it's naturally called, <clears throat> into Canadian law so that other Canadian laws would be consistent with this existing Aboriginal right, the right to self-government. British Columbia, to its credit, <clears throat> has already passed legislation that would require its laws to be consistent with UNDRIP. Since the arrival of newcomers to our traditional territories, Indigenous people have gone through many, many negative impacts, one of which is poverty. Poverty is a debilitating situation. It takes away one's identity and pride. Indigenous people were at one time very wealthy, independent, food secure nations of peoples living and thriving within their own traditional territories. When governments arrived <clears throat> in British Columbia, indigenous people were placed on small pieces of land called reserves. Our economies, which were land-based, <clears throat> were eventually obsolete as companies and corporations took up the land for things like forestry, mining. <clears throat> Indigenous people were forced to live on scraps of funds for social services. Today we're faced with a different challenge. The challenge of making use of our natural resources that still remain within our grasp to perhaps make a better life for ourselves and for our children. Corporations are coming to First Nations now. Not only are they willing to work with First Nations, but they're willing to work under their political regimes, making agreements, acknowledging that they have rights. This conference, in my view, serves an important bridge to bring these people together with First Nations to talk about 
the potential, the economic potential that may exist within our First Nation traditional territories. These corporations ought to understand and be patient. First Nations have been lied to in the past. They haven't been treated well. So trust is a major issue and an obstacle to overcome when we approach First Nations to work with them. They often don't know who to trust. What they do know is that they need to work on the issue of poverty, helping their communities to get better housing, helping their communities to find jobs. <clears throat> In the past, corporations have come and gone, some of them leaving in their wake of a, a destructive path rather than a constructive path. It's important, therefore, that corporations, in my view, take responsibility to learn something about the communities that they wish to work with. Indigenous people for thousands of years have lived in a tribal existence. They lived as collectives, sometimes five and six hundred people living in one household. In the Chilliwack territory where I reside now, the Muscala people, Simon Fraser found homes that were a thousand feet in length, five generations of people living together. This communal tribal living leads to communal tribal activity like hunting together, fishing together laughing together, crying together, and making decisions together. This idea of thinking together leads to what we call Latzumat, the idea of coming together in our minds before we make a decision. Indigenous people inherently understand the idea of democracy. Democracy is the foundation of how we conduct ourselves in the community. Our leadership understands that, they, that although they speak for us, it is the power of the people that moves and makes decisions. This concept is reflected in the Iroquois Confederacy, which was then reflected in 1776 when the United States created its own. Declaration of Independence. Indigenous people living together for so many years, doing things together, thinking together. It leads to collective ownership of things, ownership of the land. We own it collectively, all together. Ownership of intellectual property. Ownership of things like songs and masks and culture, names. So our society is organized quite differently from European society. Individuals feel that they have what's called individual sovereignty. I have a right to be, to be consulted. I have a right to make up my own mind. 
Often this democratic process is expressed by leadership in the oral tradition, where they will stand and speak for their people, sometimes for hours, bringing forth their best arguments, bringing forth their reliance on historic rules and regulations, bringing precedent forward to reinforce their arguments so that they can persuade the people in one direction or the other. Leadership, therefore, is quite different. When Europeans arrived, they said, take us, take us to your chief. And many of them are hereditary leaders, people who held the land on behalf of the people. Some of them were autocratic leaders. Others were not. It depends on whether you were facing a matriarchal society or not. Not all indigenous organizations and tribal groups are patriarchal. So it's endemic on First Nations not only to learn about how corporations operate, the boards of directors, the shareholders, the order of decision makers, but it's also important for corporations to learn about First Nations and how they operate. Corporations and First Nations, I believe, have something in common. A desire to move forward on their own agendas. But I encourage you that unless we take care of the salmon, unless we take care of fresh water, fresh air, unless we don't be very concerned, we must be very concerned about the environment. What we have will not last long. Money does not last long. What is here forever is the land, a gift to us from the Creator. And our collective responsibility is to take care of the good stewards of the land. Indigenous people see life in everything, the animals, the rocks, the air, and we praise all of these things and thank them through song and prayers. We see them as our equals, as brothers and sisters. The Bible talks about Adam giving names to all of these things, all of the animals, and having dominion over the animals. Indigenous people do not see it in that way. We are equal to all of these things. I'm very pleased to be given this chance to speak with you. I've recently been appointed as a board member to a participant in this conference, the Vancouver International Arbitration Center. They're very keen and very interested in the outcome of this conference, as I believe all of the participants. And I hope and pray that you'll come away from this conference a little bit more enlightened 
a little bit more challenged, yet also energized, working with First Nations to improve our economic situation in Canada. Thank you. Good morning, uh, Grand Chief. Uh, thank you very much for taking time to be with us here this morning. Uh, great day uh, when I get to spend time uh, with you, um, who I consider uh, one of my, my mentors and a person that I try to emulate in the day-to-day -day work that I undertake. Um, you talk about uh, poverty, um, Grand Chief, and sadly poverty has become normalized in far too many of our communities. How can we smash poverty? How can the business community assist us in addressing poverty, which has marginalized us within the socioeconomic fabric of our communities? Well, <clears throat> the first is their attitude. <clears throat> Work with us, not for us. Include us in your discussions. Uh, understand that Poverty has been debilitated, and that sometimes it's not easy to deal with broken people, people who have low trust and perhaps not the same educational awareness as, as the country. But you can't break a man's leg one day and blame him for limping the next. We have to understand where our First Nations are coming from. And I think that it's, it's very important to begin with a protocol agreement. Setting down on a piece of paper our common expectations and how we're going to work together. Something that they can refer back to when times get a little rough. Because too often I think corporations have come and gone. And we have not taken responsibility. First Nations are here for the long run. We're not here just for a few days. We're here for, for the long, long view. Seven generations ahead, that's how we make decisions. And if the companies can understand that and appreciate that, Sometimes our First Nations don't move as quickly as they'd like to see, simply because they're taking time to get to know you, to get to understand who you are. One of the first things that elders will say to me when I go to a different territory, who's your mother? Who's your father? They want to try to understand who you are, not from just a a piece of paper, but in their heart. And that's that's creating a relationship, a long-term relationship, which lasts and lasts. So it's corporations coming to First Nations. They've done some homework. And they've looked at who they're dealing with. I think they'll achieve a greater level of success. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Grand Chief. Um, a core value uh, you mentioned in, your, uh, in your, your comments, a core value that we are taught as Indigenous people is that when you take care of the land, the land will take care of you. And uh, so often within the province of British Columbia and indeed throughout Canada and the world, we have this battle between the economy versus the environment 
rather than economy and the environment. Uh, from your perspective, can we uh, develop the economy while at the same time still taking care of the environment that sustains us? Absolutely. There's, there's nothing wrong with uh, utilizing our natural resources to improve our, our standard of living. But there's an approach that we need to take that we understand that these things are alive and that we need to show respect for them, to give them space, to leave them enough time to regenerate and to grow again. And when we have uh, this different mental conception in our minds as we approach economic development, it changes the way we do things. It changes the way that we uh, uh, make use of those special gifts that the Creator has given us. I, I see too often that, especially in some mining corporations, they, they don't uh, leave enough places so that the tailings can properly be dealt with. It may not make enough clay foundation so that the waste doesn't leak into the water systems. And if we're too concerned about just making uh, a profit and not balancing that with protecting and preserving the environment, then it's a short-term gain for a long-term loss. And we all should be in it for the long haul. We all should be here with a long view. Because the, if, if we're thinking that we can get to another planet, an exoplanet, not everybody's going to go away. I'm not going to go. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Um, Stephen, Indigenous peoples have been fighting for the recognition of our title, our rights, and our place within Canadian society. And you have been at the forefront of that fight for decades now. Uh, given that our theme for the event is economic uh, reconciliation and partnerships, I'm going to kind of ask you a chicken and egg question here, Stephen. Um, what do you think uh, needs to come first, economic prosperity for our people or the recognition of our title and our rights? Well, the, the recognition of our title and rights <clears throat> has got to pre precede anything that we do. It has to come first. You know, our indigenous people, <clears throat> we've been ignored. The government made it a law that we couldn't hire lawyers to fight for our rights. The lawyers could be disbarred for fighting with indigenous people. Our rights were suppressed. And therefore, we were marginalized at the edges of the economy. We have land rights. We have an interest in the trees and in the minerals. If our people had been given that recognition earlier, we wouldn't be facing the tremendous overbearing social issues we are now facing. But rights <clears throat> precedes benefits. That's always the case. And I think that, that we are partners in Canada. We have been partners with Canada since the very beginning. 
They came to our country. We have the land and resources. They began to collect the furs, cut down the trees. It's just that their partners, the indigenous people, not receive fair share of the benefits of their own traditional lands, their own territories. And so the recognition of our indigenous rights to the land has to come first. And it's important to incorporate this recognition in any kind of MOU or memorandum of understanding when we first begin dealing with First Nations. Okay, and the recognition of our people has to uh, also include the recognition of the rich and vibrant role of uh, women within our society. And my people, the Wet'suwet'en, are a matrilineal society. I introduced myself as a member of the Gilsecu clan because my mother Clara was a member of the Gilsecu clan, Big Frog clan. I follow her. You and uh, you know your beautiful wife Gwen. Gwen is a as a as a powerhouse as well. And um, can you tell us a little bit about the important role that women play in indigenous governance structures? In our households. <clears throat> It's the men that fought for the land. They, they often stayed outside of the longhouses all their life. They would be called in for sleeping and for, for eating. But the men, every one of them were warriors for, for our nation. The women owned the house. She owned the names, the cultural property. She owned the rights to uh, the land and everything because it was passed down from her blood to the next generation. Often, um, there was conflict in the old days, sometimes between these traditional laws that had been handed down for thousands of years. Sometimes a chief wanted his son to become the next chief, even though the law required it be his sister, her son. So you would see this sham marriage happening between a brother and a sister just to accommodate his, his desire to have his own son be the chief. And it led to misconceptions. People thought that we were marrying our brothers and sisters. That was a common thing. It wasn't at all. Um, but women played this important role uh, in the balancing role that she owned the, the culture. She owned the the rights, these rights were passed down through her bloodline. And when he got married at, at, at the level of the chief's level, the husband moved in with his wife. And the Indian Act changed so many of these things because the Indian Act was bigger. Um, but the women uh, controlled the, the, the ceremonies. She simply directed the speakers as to what to say. And if you really wanted something changed or done in Stalo culture, you had to speak to the elder women. Listening uh, to your earlier comments, um, you talked about decision-making. And I recall uh, back in 2016 when the BC Assembly of First Nations entered into an MOU with the Business Council of British Columbia. And my recollection is that the uh, BCBC was um, interested in two things primarily. One, how do you govern yourselves? 
and the second was how do you make decisions? Um, can you explain a little bit more about the decision-making process within our communities that uh, corporate Canada, the business community, needs to understand? Yes, this is um, something that anthropologists often overlook. They were so interested in canoes and stone points, that sort of thing. But decision-making is a reflection of the way that we have lived for thousands of years as a collective. When you live with somebody, and if you've ever met an elderly couple, they've been together for maybe 60 years, they tend to speak less and, and, and they, they move their head this way or they put their hand this way and the other person will automatically understand, I, I need to get this person a, a co coffee or something. In other words, they, they're so comfortable with one another, they don't always have to express what's on their mind. And this concept of thinking together, this idea of, of people thinking together, is something that exists in our society. When it was time to go and... Uh, hunt for, 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 for deer, they didn't need to have a meeting and sit down and pass a resolution about that. People understood because they'd been doing it for 500 years. They knew when it was time to go hunting. They didn't need somebody to tell them. They knew when the berries were in, in, in the mountains. They knew that when the white fluff was floating, the sockeye would be in the river. They'd, they'd watch the signs. They knew when the sun was in a certain place, the stars were in a certain alignment, that's when you had to go and do certain things. And <clears throat> people thought together for thousands of years. I mean, um, that's how they, uh, they would uh, make their decisions as well. But when something new came up, something brand new, I, I know that... Uh, young boy, Louis Samuels, who was hung by a group of American white citizens from Nooksack. And the chiefs got together. They called the leaders, the Siams of the families, the head of the families together. And they said, what, what are we going to do about this? Should we go and attack the Nooksack community? And so they deliberated. They talked amongst one another the pros and cons. And in the end, they decided that it wouldn't be prudent. It wasn't a, a good thing to do. And uh, this process of decision-making allows for every individual to, to, to speak. Uh, in, in our culture, you didn't have the right to speak until you were a grandfather, a grandmother. And then you could voice your ideas. And, and so the, this idea of coming together in one thought, what we call Litzamah. I remember going to an election campaign of the Lillooet tribal group one time with George Manuel. <laughs> we were sitting there watching them make a decision about who their next tribal leader was going to be. And in this process, this is the, the, the collective oral process, Everybody's nominated. You're not, you don't put your hand up and say, I want to run. Everybody's nominated. 
And what they did was they went around the room and said, are you willing to stand to be the next tribal chairman? And you have to, you have to stand up and say, I'm nominated, but I, oh, I'm too busy or I don't feel I'm ready or blah, 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 whatever you had in your heart. And when it came to Saul Terry, Saul said, this is what I have in my mind. This is my vision for the future. This is where I think we should be fighting for our rights to fish. And you see the elders, I was watching them, they're all nodding like this. They start going, that's the one. The meeting stopped and they said, peace are needed. That was it. You know, they made a decision based on their heart, on their thinking, on their coming together in their mind. And when they reached that plateau where their mind was set, everybody's looking at each other going, yeah, this is it. There was no, there was nothing that Saul was trying to change. That was it. And this process of, of, of decision-making um, can take a long time. It can take, um, I know one time they, the Chief Billy Sapas wanted to speak about uh, Aboriginal rights and that title and whatnot. He spoke all day long. And then the people came back the next day to hear the rest of the speech, which took half a day. But people, time was different in those days. We had patience. Um, there was no clock saying, oh, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, i got to eat breakfast. Oh, it's noon, i got to stop the lunch. There's nothing like that. People ran on their, on their on the biological clock. They ran on the, the sun when it was time to get up, the sun when it was time to go to bed. They ran on the seasons. This is the flies are waking up now. Oh, we got to go look for stingers. They knew all of these things for thousands of years, and, and so our, our lifestyle was quite different in the old days, and decision-making was quite different. It, it, it was a, the ultimate democracy, in my view, the ultimate idea that everyone has a say, and, and you have a right to speak and a right to have your own thoughts. And in the end, what we try to accomplish is everyone's mind together. When that was achieved, then the decision was made. Mm -hmm. Thank you uh, so much uh, for spending time with us uh, this morning, uh, Grand Chief Stephen Point. I raise my hands in respect. I honor you and I hold you up. Um, a couple of key takeaways for our audience. Do your homework. We're not a homogenous group of people. Um, invest in relationships. And when you invest in relationships, you're investing in the success of uh uh, your business opportunity. So go slow to go fast. And, you know, Grand Chief, I just want to uh, um, say this. Um, um, what I've learned from you is that when you lead with your heart, your mind will soon follow. So once again, yeah. uh, Grand Chief, thank you so very much for taking the time uh, with us this morning. Masicho. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Grand Chief Point. As noted by the Grand Chief in his comments, leaders today must be able to harness ideas, people, and resources from across boundaries of all kinds. That requires reinventing their talent strategies and building strong connections both inside and outside their organizations. To get disparate players to work together effectively, they also need to know when to wield influence rather than authority to move things forward and when to halt unproductive discussions, squash politicking, and make final calls. 
Differences in convictions, cultural values, and operating norms inevitably add complexity to collaborative efforts, but they also make them richer, more innovative, and more valuable. Getting that value is at the heart of collaborative leadership. Collaboration is the natural byproduct of leaders who are passionately curious, craving new insights, and suspecting that others have them. Collaborative leaders are modestly confident, bouncing ideas off others without turning it into a competition. Collaborative leaders are also mildly obsessed, caring more about the collective mission than about how achieving it will benefit their personal fortunes. Thank you, Grand Chief Point, for your decades of collaborative leadership to British Columbians and for reminding us that long-term reconciliation will only occur when we educate ourselves, recognizing that when we know better, we can do better. On a humorous note, what you didn't see was all of the technological challenges we went through to record this conversation with the Grand Chief. We started the conversation. We stopped it. We started it again. We stopped it. We started it again due to poor connectivity. We asked the Grand Chief to adjust his computer, change his headphones, change his lighting, to do this, to do that. During all this problem solving, he smiled, humming a tune, staying present in the moment. I said to myself, now that man is a chief. I strive to achieve his peaceful strength as in the same circumstances, I would have been lighting my hair on fire. Grand Chief Stephen Point is a wonderful human being, and I am blessed to call him my friend and my mentor. Thank you for taking the time to listen in to this episode of Reconciliation Road. Please join me in future episodes where I will introduce exciting change agents who are pushing the dial on reconciliation. Until then, stay safe and keep standing in the light. Masicho. Reconciliation Road is supported by the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. The FNMPC is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing free of charge resources to First Nations in Canada, supporting their efforts to gain equity ownership stakes in major projects being developed on their traditional territories, while ensuring that the integrity of the land is maintained for the enjoyment of current and future generations. The FNMPC envisions a future it's where we walk the path of the Reconciliation Road together. For more information, please visit us at fnmpc.ca.